Well, good morning, church family. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, as Pastor David has asked me to preach in his absence, uh, he would want you to know that he is recovering from sickness this past week, but he is excited to be back in the office this week and picking back up in our series through the Ten Commandments next Sunday. But this morning, as we come together, we're going to be surrounding this month's scripture memory verse here at the Dawson Family of Faith. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, the beginning portion, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This past weekend, I mean, it was just an incredible weekend in the life of our church with our student ministry and our Disciple Now weekend. I was able to come up here on Saturday and to interact with some of the students and lead through a couple of portions. And as I was going home, as I was reflecting a little bit more, I just remembered that middle school was rough, right? Uh, anybody, amen, right? You know, it's, uh, I, I've met very few people that have been like, if I could go back and relive any period in my life, middle school, that's where I want to go. No, I mean, it, thankfully, you know, it's, I, I have successfully repressed most of middle school, um, but, you know, it's going through as I look back on my time, we try to find any and every place to belong, to find significance, value, worth, definition. I did it in all the different grades in middle school. It laid itself out very nicely. In sixth grade, I really wanted to be into basketball and I wanted to get some cool basketball shoes even though I couldn't play a lick of basketball. And so I remember getting an East Bay catalog and this was, you know, Amazon was just selling books at this point. And so I've filled out the serial number on a physical card, mailed it, and they sent me some shoes and an Allen Iverson dapper cap that I wore backwards. And I thought I was the coolest. And I would walk around school and put the hat on afterwards and everything was awesome, or at least I thought at the time. And then in seventh grade, that was when I kind of hit my preppy phase. I grew up my hair into a shaggy mop, got frosted tips. Yeah. I wore Hollister t-shirts and my buka shell, seashell necklace. And I had a perpetual cloud of Axe body spray that just followed me around wherever I went. And then in eighth grade, it was kind of split into semesters at that point. In the first semester of eighth grade, I, that was my punk phase. I was in a garage band. I started playing guitar, four chords, and I could uh, go through and I put duct tape on everything that I owned and I alternated days wearing hot pink, high top, Converse, all-stars and checkerboard vans. But that was until the second semester and I got on the baseball team. I exchanged all that for Under Armour everything and carried a duffel bag with me so that everybody knew that I was on the baseball team. I was looking for anywhere to belong, to find my people, to get value, definition, and worth. But it doesn't just stay in middle school. I talk about, I work with our college students here at Dawson and it's the same in college. And I have to talk with them through not finding worth, identity, value in your school, in your major, your extracurriculars, the bullet points on your resume, a relationship, that's a big one. If we're so looking for someone else or other things to tell us who we are, what happens when they get taken away? What happens when they leave? What happens when it is lost? Well, then we feel that way. And it follows us on into adulthood. I mean, we find value, dignity, worth, significance in our jobs and our spouses and our kids, their performance in school, on the ball team, our neighborhood. Look, all of these other places. But what happens when they are gone? What is still left of us? None of them can bear the weight. None of them have the staying power 
to give us identity in Christ. And so when we come to God in his word and we let him tell us who we are, when we let him give us that value, that worth, that significance, that definition, then we know it's in a secure place that can never be taken away and it will never be lost. And so as we come together and as we look at this in Romans chapter 8, we'll be in verses 1 through 13, but mostly in verses 1 through 4. I would encourage you that what we're looking at this morning has the power to radically transform you and to give you enough to be happy in God on into eternity. And as we look at Romans chapter 8, follow along as we begin in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Biblically speaking, everyone is in one of two places. It's painting with a broad brush, but it is pinpoint in its precision. Everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam or in Christ. Everyone is either operating in the flesh or in the spirit. Paul right here in Romans chapter 8 is just building on what he has established earlier in Romans chapter 5 when he talks about how all of us, all of humanity without exception are in Adam, that we sinned in Adam and that the sinful nature that we have now inherited, that the corruption now that we have inherited, that we live into and that we relish, that this nature dominates and all of us are in Adam, that we are walking according to the flesh, that we are going through life on our own terms, regardless of God, like not giving God any regard, calling the shots and thinking all the while that we are free when we are really slaves to our own passions and pleasures. Condemnation, punishment characterizes being in Adam. But there's another way, and it's being in Christ. Being in Christ. And for some of you here this morning, this is what you have been longing to hear and you just didn't know it. This glorious truth that you can be in Christ is like being in a storm shelter in the midst of a hurricane of accusation and guilt and shame. And that you can find safe harbor for your soul. And that you are not defined by the things that you have done or left undone, but rather by what Christ has done Fully and finally, that you can be in Christ and experience the glorious freedom of the children of God. Because you see, outside of Christ, in Adam, there is only bondage. But in Christ, there is life and light and love. Well, okay, if you concede, like I'm contending, that everybody's either in Adam and in Christ, and we all start in Adam, how do we get in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ means to be united with him. 
to side with him, to be aligned with him, to be a part of his family, to be on his team, to let the world know where you stand, that you're in. But the nature of this being in, uh, we, we have to qualify because sometimes we can think of being in kind of like a I've been thinking a lot about football recruiting lately. Uh, I don't know if any of you are college football fans. You follow National Signing Day recruiting, all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of people care a lot about where you know, people are going to be playing football for the next two to three years. And you know, it's that time of year where, the, especially with the high-profile athletes, you know, men or women, depending on what sport, and they have the ceremony in the gym, the student athlete with all of the family, you have the table with each of the hats for the different schools that they have received offers and maybe is in their top three or top five. And then the student athlete, after a lot of anticipation, begins the speech. I'd like to thank my family, my coaches, my teammates. Without them, I wouldn't be here today. But for the next three to four years, I'm going to be taking my talents to such and such a school. And then they put on the hat or they show the t-shirt underneath and they have aligned their interests. They have put everything in that, all their eggs in that basket. And that's where they're going to be going to school. And that analogy, I mean, it doesn't really work for us in this sense because it breaks down on a crucial level. Because you see, no one is scholarshiped into the kingdom of God based on their own merit or performance. That you could not perform well enough or accumulate enough stats to be given an offer from the kingdom of God. That you could not get the test scores, you could not go on enough mission trips or do this many service hours or share this, that, or the other or not say those words or do those things to be glowing enough to be accepted into the kingdom of God. It is not because of anything that we have done, but it is only by grace through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. There are no merit-based scholarships to give into the kingdom, but rather a free gift to join the family. It's not a signing day ceremony, but rather it's more like being adopted into a family. That there is someone who is powerful able and willing to provide, to create the space for us to be able to be brought in and that we can be sure that we can have a name change and that we can have a place to rest, to be safe and to live as a member of that family. This is how you are in, by repenting, turning away, saying no to sin and then saying yes to Jesus, living and walking in faith by the Spirit. Everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. We are all in Adam, and we can be in Christ by accepting the free gift, coming into the family. And when we come to Christ, when we are in Christ, we are secure, we're safe, we're sure, and we're set free. And if you leave with nothing else this morning, I would hope you leave with this. That in Christ, you are set free to live free. In Christ, you are set free to live free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Well, what are the implications of this? Well, I would say that there are three that we'll discuss this morning. The first is you don't have to look back on your past in sin and your shame. You don't have to look back. Because Jesus, when he came in living his perfect life, in dying his death in our place, in rising again to new life, in ascending to the right hand of the Father, that he accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. That he, when he on the cross said, it is finished, I believe him. And that he didn't pay for our sins on the installment plan. He didn't pay for our sins up to a certain amount and then we now have to take the care of the rest. Or he didn't just pay for our sins from before we became a Christian and now it's all on us. No, fully and finally, it is finished. And so when the enemy comes, he starts to throw your sins in your face. When he starts to play the highlight reel of the worst things that you've ever done, you can with full confidence say Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can sing with your mouth or sing in your heart when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That Jesus now frees us from having to look back in shame or despair over our past. But not only that, Jesus frees us from having to look around in the present and compare Some of us play the comparison game in our minds all the time. You know what it's like to constantly be sizing up people in your mind. To figure out the pecking order for where you fit. Or you have some thoughts going through your mind of like, gosh, I'm never going to achieve what that person has achieved. Or, man, that person, they don't have nearly as many followers or likes on their social media posts or man, I'm not going to be able to keep up with all the square footage that they're adding on or ah, I just can't make friends as effortlessly as that person. I don't have those connections that we are constantly comparing. But when the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 1 settles deep in our souls and we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't have to measure up to other people. We can be secure and confident in Christ's work and who he says that we are. We don't have to be better than other people and we can actually celebrate when others are doing well. When God has so gifted and empowered other people to be able to do certain things. Because God's approval is not a zero-sum game. Just because someone else gets it doesn't mean that you don't. That we are free from comparing ourselves to other people. Because our identity, our value, our worth, our significance is not wrapped up in what we do or what we have. But in Christ, we are free from comparing. So we're freed from looking back, we're freed from looking around, and we're freed from looking ahead in dread. 
that some of you know what it's like to wrestle with the assurance of your salvation. That you constantly wondering, being plagued with the thoughts, am I saved? Will I be in heaven with Jesus? And I wouldn't want to encourage you from more words from the Apostle Paul, but this time in the book of Ephesians, if you look at chapter 2, follow along in verse 5. Because this is about what is coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, and it is by grace that you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, where? In Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That this is our inheritance. This is what is coming for those who are safe and sure and secure in Christ. The immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We will be with those who have lived and who have died in the Lord. We will be with them and you will see the face of Jesus. I want to remind you of that this morning. And that the future reality would so grip your heart and your affections here today. I want you to be reminded that there will come a day. There will be a time that you will see the face of him who made you and who saved you. And that you, the one that your heart has so longed for, the one that you have beheld and looked on here in this life with the eyes of faith through the word. But that day your faith will be sight and you will see the face of Jesus. And you will fall and worship. Would this grip your heart? With this reality that you know this is coming your way? Would it set you free from looking ahead in dread? But rather cultivate anticipation and joy and longing. Because if you are in Christ, you are safe. There is no condemnation. You, if you're in Christ, are set free to live free. But it's not just something for the future. It's something that can be experienced today. As Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, you look at verses 5 through 11. And Paul is going more and talking about what it means to live and walk according to the flesh and to live and to walk according to the Spirit, being in Adam, being in Christ. And it's worth meditating on and thinking long and deep this afternoon and this week about. But I want to draw our attention together this morning to the end of Paul's argument here at the first part of Romans chapter 8. As we look at verses 12 and 13. This freedom that we now have. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does it mean to be a debtor? Well, it means to owe something to someone, to be enslaved, to be under obligation, to be in service of someone. 
And this passage says that we owe the flesh nothing. That Jesus has paid it all and now we are his. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But there is a way to live if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. If we kill sin by the sin-slaying power of the Holy Spirit. I love the way that John Owen, the Puritan writer and thinker, the way that he put it succinctly. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That sin is no light or insignificant thing, but it is weighty and destructive and dealing in death and darkness. And rather than making friends or cozying up with sin, we need to seek to put it to death. For by this way, we will be able to live. But you might be asking, well, how do I kill sin? It's, it's very abstract, but help me out. How do I kill sin? Well, I think it begins by us recognizing that it is not in our own power. That there is not enough moral sweat that we could exert, no amount of try-hardness that we could do to be able to eradicate the sin in our own strength. But it is only by the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, well, it's by the Spirit, but how do I do that? How do I, by the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? I'll answer with a very well-known passage from Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is writing about the armor of God. Because we have to ask, well, what is the death-dealing weapon that the Spirit wields? We look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and take the sword of the Spirit... The Spirit's sword, which is the Word of God. You put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit using His Word. And church family, this is why we gather together around the Word every week and we don't just talk about whatever we've been thinking about lately. This is why our age group programming and our small groups and the songs that we sing here are rooted in the Word because we don't want to just pump people full of motivation and you can do it but we believe that something happens when we engage God in his word that his Holy Spirit that inspired it now illuminates it in our hearts and in our minds and helps it helps us to live it and that we as we behold Christ that we are changed into his same image that week by week day by day we are being shaped and formed and molded into his very likeness. And I would want you to see this, that this is perhaps the best way to be able to kill sin. It's by not fixating on it, but by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Not focusing so much on, no, don't want to do this, don't do this, don't do this, can't do this, can't go there, don't want to get this out, oh, don't focus on this. But fix your eyes on Jesus, because when you do, I think we will experience what Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century Scottish theologian, called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Well, what is that? The expulsive power of a new affection. It's when a desire that is stronger drives out all other weaker desires. It was about 12 years ago 
my wife Becca and I, we were both in college and we were at a conference together and we were at a breakout session and we heard a pastor talk about the expulsive power of a new affection. And maybe Romeo and Juliet from Shakespeare can help you in a similar way that he helped me about 12 years ago. Do you remember how the beginning of Romeo and Juliet starts? Uh, Romeo is just sulking. Why? Because he is heartsick over Rosalind. He's been friend-zoned. He wanted her as the love of his life so badly, but she did not return his affection. And so he's like pouting all over the place. And his cousin Benvolio, God help him. And he just goes to Romeo and he's like, be ruled by me, forget to think of her. That's easy for you to say, Benvolio. And he just continues to pout. And Benvolio's like, no, nah, cousin, we're going to a party. I'm gonna make you forget all about Rosalind. I'm not going. Yes, you are. Let's go. And so Romeo, he goes to the party. But I mean, he's a killjoy. He's just pouting in the corner. He wants to be anywhere else other than there. He wants to be staring at a picture of Rosalind, just thinking about her until he sees something. Or rather, he sees someone, but soft. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who's already sick and pale with grief, for thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Rosalind who? This is the expulsive power of a new affection, being so captivated by something stronger that it eclipses, that it drives out, that it makes the other desires turn tail and run because it is so strong. It is so much better. I wonder what envious moons need to be killed today because we have a sun of righteousness that far outshines them all and that eclipses everything else in whom there is no shadow or turning due to change. That Jesus Christ can give you what your heart has been looking for all of your life in a way that none of these other things can. And as you dwell deeply in his word and by the power of the spirit, behold him. And desire him and have that affection for him that it drives out, that it eclipses all of these other lesser desires. And when you know that you can be in Christ today, that you don't have to look to any of these other things. And so some of you here today are probably not following Christ. Living life on your own terms, calling your own shots living life without regard for him or his ways. And you might think that you are free, but you're really in bondage to your passions, to your pleasures. There's a different way to live. You can be free today. You can turn from your sin and you can put your trust, your hope in Christ.
And some of you here today following Jesus for a long time, but you're struggling with sin. It's waging war in your heart and in your mind. And you need to receive the encouragement from the word of God today that by the power of the spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the body. That you can behold Jesus. Not fixating on your sins or the things that you don't want to do, but you can fix your eyes on Jesus. You can look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You don't have to look back at your past and your sin and your shame because it has been dealt with at the cross in the empty tomb. You don't have to look around in comparison trying to figure out if you're better than this or that other person for your worth because we look to the cross and we see our worth. And you don't have to look ahead in dread, wondering if you are going to do enough good to outweigh the bad, to tip the cosmic scale in your favor. But you can look ahead with full assurance of faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ that we now receive as a gift. Are you sitting condemned or are you standing free today? In Christ, you are set free to live free. Let us pray.